Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And I'm talking today with one of my dearest friends and a veteran podcaster, David Silver. And we decided we would make the theme of today... An, an artist who we both are fascinated by named Nicholas Rorich. Rorich, um, I want to say I'm looking at notes now so I can get this correctly, was born in 1874 and he died in 1947. So that's before I was born and kind of before David was paying much attention. But um, he, he I, I I realized when we were planning this that we need to explain who this guy is because he's not very well known to many people. Even Raghu Marcus, who knows more about spirituality and esoterica than anyone that I know, was not familiar with him. And so his paintings are on exhibit both in Russia, where I have not seen them, but also in Manhattan. It's something called the Rorich Museum, R-O-E-R-I-C-H. And you can Google him, and uh, our colleagues are going to figure out a way of getting some of his paintings available on this website as you listen to this, if you're if you're interested. And the subject of his paintings was almost exclusively spiritual themes. Uh, a lot of them were of the Himalayas, where he traveled extensively. A lot of them seem to have been based on visions that he had of saints from many traditions, whether it's the prophet Elijah. Uh, Muslim saints, Buddha, Buddha, Hindu saints, uh, the Divine Mother in many forms, and many other more uh, less well-known images, all of which I believe represented his idea of, of, of God coming in so many different forms and part of so many different traditions, very consistent with my beliefs and the belief of Hilda Charlton, who is a teacher that I've spoken about often, and she had spoken often about the existence of something called the Masters of the Great White Lodge. And um, they emanated in the public conversation first through a, something called Theosophy and a woman named Madame Blavatsky. David, why don't you explain to people your understanding of what Theosophy was and who the Masters were and are? Well, it always seemed to me that Theosophy was a way of Westerners. English people, Russian people, American people, uh, talking about spiritual matters and incorporating a lot of you know universal ecumenical ideas, but mainly mystical. And I think, Danny, I'm right in saying that uh, it, it sort of reached its peak at the end of the 19th century. And uh, people wrote books, many of them, which were, you know... Kind of sort of Hindu mysticism, I always thought, you know, kind of like reincarnation and Maya and this life is an illusion and there's a greater reality beneath and above it. And Madame Blavatsky was one of the, uh, was really the, the leader of it, along with Annie Besant, 
and uh, other people. And he wrote a book called Glamour, which I always thought was about fashion. But it was actually a deep sort of core thing, which was a glamour was Maya, which was illusion. That wasn't Alice Bailey who wrote Glamour? It was Alice Bailey? I, I'm not Who's sure. Because <laughs> Alice Bailey also did write a, a book called Glamour, very consistent with the um, different esoteric meaning that you're talking about. Annie Besant, I think, was a follower of Blavatsky, and a number. there were a number of other people, and this is not an attempt to be historical about theosophy, but some of the English translations and popularization of it came as late as the 1930s. And I, I know when I first went to Hilda's meetings, uh, within a, a, a few months, one of her students at Hilda's behest gave me a book called The Masters and the Path, which was written by somebody named Ledbetter, who was close to Andy Besant. And that had come sometime in the 20th century. But the point is that, that, that this worldview, this universal cosmic view, had come along in the 19th century, and Rorick, it already existed when Rorick came of age. But somehow or other, in, in Russia, he, he connected with it. And one possibility is that he connected with it through his wife, Helena Rorick, who was a great mystic in her own right, and a pretty good painter. In the Rorick Museum, she did a portrait of Nicholas Rorick that's quite powerful and beautiful. And the idea of the masters are that these beings have existed and walked on earth and lived lives and interacted with other human beings who have a higher uh, evolution, a higher cosmic intelligence and connection to God, who are devoted to spreading light and who some believe are available uh, to us even now in, in non-physical form. And Helena Rorick uh, was said to have channeled uh, the master El Morier and his um, guidance to her about world peace, about art and about civilization informed a lot of what the Rorichs created. They, they came up with their own kind of yoga called Agni Yoga, which, again, I don't pretend to be an expert on. But the life that Rorick leads, lead, led... Sorry, the fascinates me because in addition to being a great artist, he was someone, while a deep mystic who lived in inner life most of the time, he interacted with the outside world an extraordinary amount, both in terms of organizing artists. Uh, he worked with Igor Stravinsky uh, and, and designed and painted all of the sets for the Rites of Spring, which at its time in the early 20th century. David, talk about what the impact was of the Rites of Spring. Well, it was, it was incredible because, you know, now we look back on it as a piece of classical music, if it's somewhat uh, unusual one, but at that time it was considered revolutionary and even people were screaming at the first concert and going crazy and denouncing Stravinsky and it was just an enormous controversy which these days would, you know, in the days of Lady Gaga and, and Miley, it's so weird to think that a piece of classical music really upset people and said, you know, this is the end of, of music. It wasn't. And uh, Diaghilev and uh, Rorick designed uh, sets for these things that were so beautiful and um, 
the music itself is is extraordinary. It is about spring, about the you know. So yeah, Rorick was involved with great geniuses of his time. And it was the beginning of a new concept of art, kind of a non-literal art, what later became called impressionism, that affected non-traditional music, non-traditional poetry, non-traditional painting. And, and it had to do with the idea that art, I guess, was supposed to represent the real inner world of people emotionally, intellectually, and not just the two-dimensional external world. So he was deeply involved with that as an artist. He also was very committed to, to, a, to an idealistic vision of world peace and worked not particularly successfully, but in the short term, but planted seeds of, of the vision of, of international cooperation and work. Of course, World War II came along right in the middle of his life. But he, when he lived in the United States for about 15 or 20 years, mostly based in New York City, although he toured all over the country. And at that time, he was like the celebrity painter. And exhibits of his attracted thousands of people and great media coverage because of the vividness of his colors and the, the daring of the kind of spiritual uh, content of his paintings. Uh, and he, he got to know President Roosevelt. He was very, very close advisor and teacher to Henry Wallace, who later became vice president at the time was Secretary of Agriculture in the New Deal. Uh, and at the same time, he later was sort of denounced by Wallace because of... Um, you know, arguments he got into with funders. He visited Tibet and, mar and spent years uh, on, a, on a trip trying to do paintings of and find antiquities connected to ancient Tibetan traditions. He, he was obsessed with the existence of a place and an idea called Shambhala. I know, I think, David, when you and I first spoke about Rorich, you were familiar with this book about Shambhala. Could you explain what well, Shambhala is? Shambhala is supposed to be a paradisic state. And I think Tibetan Buddhists would consider it an inner state. But, you know, uh, Westerners sort of thought maybe it was an actual place. And there were places in the foothills of the Himalayas that were really amazing. They weren't arid and hot and sweaty like southern India. They're cool and beautiful with grass. And, and Rorik painted a lot of, of that kind of stuff. But I think that uh, what you were saying, Danny, about um, his planting a seed and then going out and, and, you know, being on an expedition of a very rigorous kind, a dangerous one, actually, is something we can hardly realize these days because people can, you know, just take a jet somewhere and then uh, rent a car and then maybe some more primitive thing, but they can get to places all over the world and it's no such a big deal. But in those days, in the 1920s, I think it was when he was in Tibet, it was yeah. extraordinarily dangerous. And in fact, on that expedition, they lost people uh, through cold and being left stranded at one point for, I think, four months. Barely survived. But this rigor, you know, is behind Rorik's world vision. Uh, the idea that Tibetan religion and Eastern religion was just as powerful and as ameliorating as Christianity or Judaism. These are revolutionary ideas. But I know uh, when Danny first brought this up, that the political influence, uh, the seed that you, you spoke of, is actually, I think, quite extensive because he was a universalist. He was a globalist. He was someone who believed that unity was possible. 
and that uh, hatred and racism and divisiveness—they just abominated him. So he spent his whole life painting, doing sets. But at the other hand, which Danny has brought up to me, his power as a political persuader, a sort of a non-political persuader, actually, but someone who persuaded men as as, as with status of vice president of the United States. And he was with Roosevelt once, right, Danny? I mean, he, he met Roosevelt. Uh, and he he envisioned, I think he got in a vision, the idea of something called the Pax Cultura, which is a symbol that is present in some of his paintings and that you can look up, uh, you know, on the web and so on, that, that in his mind would be put on cultural institutions the way the Red Cross symbol was put on hospitals so that in times of war, the antiquities and the collective wisdom of humanity and art would be uh, preserved. Uh, this uh, went right out the window uh, once Hitler got into power and World War II started. But the idea of art having that kind of importance to humanity was was very important to him. And, and he had allies, uh, all the great artists of the 20s and 30s, both in Europe and, and the United States, were... Uh, affiliated with this with this movement, he later met uh, Nehru in India. He died in India. You know, he was born in Russia. He lived in the U.S. for many years. He spent some time in London, and then the last period in his life was in India. And he got to know Nehru. He got to know Indira Gandhi, who wrote about meeting Rorich and his family. And uh, it's really impossible to know the influence of these spiritual people on people who operate in the world. But but there is a light that emanates from the kind of reading about his life. There's a few books about his life and the paintings that somehow endures and represents the idea of unity of religion and unity of faith. You know, he was very, very big on the idea of honoring the divinity of multiple faiths, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and many long forgotten paths to, 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 to the one. And, and one of the reasons I've, I've been thinking about him and trying to grapple with the meaning of his life, besides that I just love some of the images that he left us with, is that he had a really hard time uh, in the world. He, 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 uh, uh, he lived to be into his mid-70s. He obviously had an extremely meaningful marriage. His wife was considered a master right alongside him by all of their students and the people around them. And he had two sons who loved him and carried out his work in their in their way. But he was constantly in opposition to the elites of the time. As a Russian who, who was born before the Russian Revolution and then was active after it, he was suspected of being a Bolshevik agent by some countries. He was suspected of being a white Russian anti-Bolshevik by some in Russia. He was, um, uh, he was, uh, had, had um, opposition from the authorities of so many different governments because of this. And, and even though he really never had a, a political bone in his body or supported any army or economic uh, attempt, he, he was this controversial character simply because he stood for peace and harmony, which was literally radical in the context of the times and is still kind of radical in certain circles, in certain circumstances today. And, 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 I, and I try to get my head around the idea that somebody could be aligned with 
a divine power which is in all of us and which is superior to all earthly matters, you know, greater than the kings and the billionaires and the armies of the world outlasts all of it and is far bigger than anything on this earth or anything that our mind can conceive, bigger than any language that I am likely ever to learn to speak. And at the same time, gets gets so uh, pushed around by by these gross forces. I mean, obviously, we see this again and again when you study religion, whether it's crucifixion of Jesus or, uh, you know, I, I did a conversation with Richard Rowe recently who reminded me that Rabbi Akiva was flayed, you know, after his experience in the Holy of the Holies or, or, or people like Dr. King or Gandhi being assassinated. But I just... Uh, I just have a hard time understanding the relationship between the divine and love as being this powerful force that in some way is going in a direction to, to bring out some sort of a better version of humanity and of the world and the tremendous uh, obstacles that whether it's Joan of Arc or you just go down through history. Uh, do you ponder this and worry about it and think about it? And how are we supposed to think about this and be spiritual people, honor those who do this work and witness the difficulties that they have? Well, I think it extends outside, you know, any category outside of art. I mean, this morning in, in Turkey, 86 peace marchers were obliterated by a bomb. Mm. And those people were just as valuable as anybody else. Yes, also yes. Also, more because they were. So why did they? And it was literally a, a, a for peace. Uh, yes. Having to do with the Kurds and the Syrians or something like that. It was actually a peace march, right? Yeah, there were Kurds there and and others, but they were. I saw film, and they were just dressed like anybody you would see in the street in jeans and t-shirts, some of them with Nike on them and all that. They were just teenagers and young people and dancing and singing. They looked beautiful, and you saw, unfortunately. The moment when the bomb went off, and I, when I was watching it on CNN this morning, I thought, "Why, why? Well, if there's a God, how could he or she allow this?" And the same applies, obviously, to your question. The, right. Uh, you know, John Lennon is a good example. It's not like he wasn't flayed; he was assassinated, but he wasn't politically assassinated. He was assassinated by a lunatic. But right. the truth of the matter is, John had a very hard time because Nixon was in power when John was saying things that were very anti-war. Right. And anti-everything. And John was sort of similar to Rurik in a way. He was a great artist. But he spent yes. half of his life, as we know, in, in New York with Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and people that we knew, uh, just in a, in a resistance posture against the... Uh, and stood very much for peace. Obviously, yes. he wrote Give Peace a Chance. Yes. Uh, but to answer is... your question, I, I, it's, a, it's one of the great mysteries of karma, you know, that, that we have free will. If we didn't have free will, we'd be robots. So if, if you can send, the, the evolution of mankind is based upon free will and therefore mistakes are made by humans who are not, as it were, gods. Within that, you could say that the sacrifices made by Christ, by Dr. Mm -hmm. King, uh, by Nelson Mandela, uh, were worth it because of the general collective amelioration. And then again, if you go into the Hindu or Buddhist world, reincarnation suggests that their next incarnation will be quite beautiful because of the amount of good they did on the planet. Now, that's obviously not going to fit with everyone that's listening to this. They say, well, I don't care about reincarnation. I like John Lennon. He was shot at 40 and he was troubled. And Dr. King was one of the greatest men who ever lived and he was shot in his 40s, right, Danny? Uh, I think King was 39. Really? 
I'm not sure King made it to 40, uh, but uh, certainly very, very young, yeah. Well, maybe these emblematic tragedies do do an enormous amount. I mean, you know, our mutual friend Danny Schechter worked with uh, Nelson Mandela, and we learned all the time from Danny that Nelson Mandela was not happy in jail, and he didn't like being there, and he had rage in him, but he came out, and the first thing he did when he was made president of this country was create a, re a reconciliation commission that stopped people from murdering uh, apartheid believers in the streets, and it worked. And yeah, I uh, I quite love that movie Invictus. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, 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 where um, uh, oh God, I forget the great actor that played Mandela. Um, oh, but it'll come to us, you know. Uh, and uh, where he he got he embraced the Afrikaner rugby team, which had been the symbol of racism and oppression, uh, but saw how much it meant to the white citizens of South Africa and by embracing them, you know, helped, helped kind of unify the country. Yeah. Mandela's pretty, pretty saintly dude. He, he lived uh, to an old age. Um, and I guess the, um, if one's not going to believe that form and his body is the ultimate statement of existence and that, 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 much as we cherish and honor the body and, you know, try to be healthy and try not to do any harm to others and be on the side of, policies that are better for people's health, including being against wars, that, 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 that we can't feel that the physical outcome is the ultimate statement of the value of someone's being in life. It's just, it's not. If we, if we believe that, even though it's hard to remember 24 hours a day, I certainly don't, but if, 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 that's, if that's the basic philosophy one's sort of signing up for, then, then you can't complain that you can't judge reality only by the physical results of it even at the same time that you're making some sort of an ethical commitment to get the best results for yourself and for those people around you. I guess that's, I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Think about Rorick and the times he lived in where, you know, the first world war was the most absurd war in the history of mankind. I think, you know, a couple of principalities and princes and, 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 you know, were shot and one guy was assassinated and millions of people died with moving a trench, you know, a yard in a day. Germans on one side, yeah, French. Yeah, yeah. absurd well, on words. Rorich was doing his Rorich, work in that context, which is yeah. And, well, Rorich, the other thing about him is he was Russian, and he was born in Saint Petersburg. You know, he at a very early age knew that he cared about art and about nature. He like almost like Thoreau was obsessed with all of the plants and the physical, natural beauty around him. He was also kind of like Joseph Campbell, fascinated by the ancient legends. Uh, of, of the parts of Russia that he grew up in and felt that there was a folk wisdom there and that that folk wisdom had relevance. But he also had this impulse to walk on the world stage. And the Russian Revolution, you know, uh, we're still dealing with the ramifications of that this very moment. And Russia is just a culture and a country with so many contradictions. It's produced some of the greatest thinkers and artists, whether it's Tolstoy, uh, Stravinsky, uh, uh, not to mention all the Russian Jews who, who came uh, to, to here, and, and Rurich. And it's also produced some of the greatest suffering and tyrants uh, you know, in, 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 in the world. And it also has this odd connection with India that I don't completely understand but that is there, both in terms of Rurich's relationship with Nehru, the long kind of odd alliance during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and India, 
Uh, it wasn't a fully blown alliance because Nehru was determined to be non-aligned. But in the U.S., non-aligned was considered shaky. Um, and then there's that incredible album that I recommend to everybody, uh, Live in the Kremlin, where Ravi Shankar, just before Glasnost happened, uh, played in the Kremlin with some traditional Russian singers and combined Indian and, and Russian music. Um, what do you make of, of, of Russia's place in the cosmology of the world? Well, you're right in saying that the, the production of art and, and, and cultural richness is, is unparalleled. I mean, it's fantastic. And, you know, but it's always been an agricultural-based society where the peasantry is very divided from the elite. And it's no surprise to me that it was a revolution in 1917 because there was great suffering going on and nobody seemed to care. Uh, unfortunately, you know, their shot at an ideal state was, was dead as Stalin was looking down at Lenin's soon-to-be corpse. You know, he stood over Lenin and Lenin was a purist and Stalin was a real politician and a, and a, a murderer eventually, I guess. Let, and, let me just interject one thing about Lenin. Yeah. Lenin's wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, uh, loved Rorich. Really? And oh. After Rorich came back from the Himalayas, he met her. Lenin was long dead and gave her some Himalayan soil. Uh, and it was, uh, they had this uh, connection. She herself uh, was enough of a mystic to appreciate him. I just throw that in. That's fantastic, because that really sort of is the corollary of what I'm saying, is that Rorik and Lenin and the idealists probably would have got along very well. He was in a weird position because he left the country. He wasn't totally trusted in other countries because of the times. And then when he went back, he actually worked with, with, with Soviets, and he was there and, and not murdered or put in a gulag. Uh, and he, in one book, I read, or in one article I read about him, they said he was always a patriot, always defended the Soviet Union, even because he felt that as weird as it was, it was better than what was before. And you know what, Danny, what I was thinking was how modern this man is. You know, like it, we take it for granted now. But in those days, to, a bit, to cross, those, cross those lines between art, culture, politics and spirituality was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. You know, you must have grown up with the Russian Orthodox Church, which is... Yeah, I mean, according to Wikipedia, which is not always accurate, he, right. he and his wife also were great admirers of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, uh, the poetry of Tagore and the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, so he was a real um, new age person about 100 years before that uh, phrase ever became a thing. Um but, you know, it's, it's um, just go back to what you said. I know we're not politicians, so no one's going to, it's not going to hurt either of our careers if we get this wrong. But are you saying that Lenin was a better guy than Stalin and that Stalin betrayed something in Lenin or, or, yes, or well, Lenin at the beginning of the problem himself, Lenin, as you see Lenin the history was, of the Soviet Union? You know, obviously it was fanatical. And I guess they had to be fanatical to organize and, and, and execute that revolution. But certainly, from what I've read, uh, he did not have any idea of mass persecution or mass murder. Stalin was an ambitious guy who really would have gone nowhere if he hadn't have been by Lenin's bedside deathbed mm. with others and stole the whole thing, in, in putting it simply. I mean, he just took it over like a, you know, like all... So the persecution and, and the political assassinations and the paranoia that we come to associate with life in the Soviet Union 
that's Stalin. That's Stalinism. And Leninism is some – we don't really know what it would have been if he'd lived to be older. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, you know, usually the phrase obviously, as you very well know, is Marxist-Leninist, which, yeah. suge- which suggests a political philosophy rather than the carrying out of a, of a, of a political expediency as far as – and, you know, as far as an extreme, an extremist gulags and concentration camps. But Lenin was a visionary. I don't know enough to know whether he had that rage in him that decided to uh, murder as many people as possible. Yeah, Stalin, Which Stalin definitely did. I mean, there's yeah. no way Stalin's not one of the great villains, much yeah. as, definitely. Uh, you know, I, 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 that's one thing we have to say the right wing is right about. He was a bad fellow, yes? He's a bad guy. And, and one of the reasons Rorick left, I think, was because he saw in the United States first, and France, and of course, and, and England. Well, in England, you know, he was friends with H.G. Wells in England. And, yes, yes. You know, he was just, he, he was a citizen of the world in the artistic world, but he did spend a lot of time in New York, no question about that. Yeah, and, and he was, to say he was ahead of his time is, is you know, you turned me on to him. So, I mean, I was, I didn't know who he was, and then when we went to the museum together, First of all, the paintings are so incredibly luminescent and beautiful. So when you guys who are listening see them, you'll see what we're talking about. But to be able to talk about it without even referring to the paintings is a, is a testament to his philosoph- philosophical power. The, the, yeah. You know, the Agni, it was called the Agni Yoga Society. You know, we, you know there's a yoga studio on every block now in Minneapolis. It's, it's, not, it's nothing new anymore. There are 40 million of these people in the United States, apparently, who do yoga and are vegans and so on. But in, in 1915, 1929, people must have looked at him and thought he was a major maniac, lunatic. And yeah. he managed to find those who saw, like Wallace, which it was sort of a sad ending, but he found Henry Wallace, a man who had the capacity to understand him, and Nehru and Tagore. And, you know, Diaghilev, these are amazing minds. Yeah, he, giants that, that yeah. looked at him as a peer, yeah. So he went with them, and, you know, and he had a lot of it. You were talking before about problems. You didn't have political problems. You had financial problems. So Thomas Beecham, who was the most respected conductor when I was growing up in England, he was an old, old man then in his 90s or something. Thomas Beecham, uh, you know, invited Rorick to do a set for, I believe, a ballet. It could have been Rider Spring, it could have been anything else. And then didn't pay him. And, and, and stiffed yeah. him, absolutely stiffed him, and Rorick never got the money for months and months of very difficult work. Problems, I mean, he had these problems. He never whined, though. In my, at least in my interpretation of it, he wasn't a whiner. He didn't say but negative things about people unless they were absolutely awful, and maintained this positiveness and this, this wonderful sense of the inner... Yeah, it seemed to me very interdirected. I mean, there's only a few books about him. Only a few people chronicled him. And, of course, it's subjective. But uh, there's no record of him uh, bad-mouthing anyone. The same thing in the U.S. There was this whole building. It's still on the Upper West Side, you know, called the Masters Building, the Masters Apartments. And some big, uh, very wealthy fellow um, put up all the money and then later decided to take all the control away from Rurich and... um, it's just one of those uh, weird, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's hard to juxtapose the external coverage of him, which included years of him being a major artistic celebrity, the likes of which no modern painters are, and then also years of him being this sort of 
controversial character in different parts of the world, accused of charlatanism um, and so on. You know, when Henry Wallace, uh, who is a great hero of mine, and how I learned about Rorich was I read a biography of Henry Wallace, and my parents both uh, volunteered for Henry Wallace in his 1948 campaign for president, and Henry Wallace was the peace candidate. He was the candidate that was against the escalation of the Cold War, and that's why the Democrats pushed him out and wouldn't let him run for vice president in 44 after having served as vice president from 1940 but but he had broken with with Rorich for some reason uh, he sided with the investors he's he 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 got uh, nervous about the rumors or maybe he had some good reason but he had for years he had written these letters to Rorich which were called where he would call him his guru and you can imagine in 1948 the word guru was not well known in the United States it was a very very foreign concept there had been a few people that had brought the idea of yoga here principally Paramatsa Yogananda, who came in the 40s, and Vivekananda, who visited, I guess, in the 20s or something. But it was a very, very rare thing. And there were the, the, the so-called guru letters became this political scandal that was used as a negative campaign against Wallace by Harry Truman, who ended up getting most of the votes. That, you know, I mean, Henry Wallace was kind of, I guess, the Bernie Sanders of his moment, but he was running on a fourth party at the same time that the, the racist Strom Thurmond was running on a third party, and and uh, you know you know Truman famously won the election, and if Truman you know my parents believed that he betrayed a lot of the New Deal, was responsible for the ushering in McCarthyism and and escalating the the, the, the Cold War, but but the fact that that this mystic from Russia. Um, somehow was injected into a presidential campaign in 1948 is just another amazing quirk of fate. And it makes Rorich kind of consistent with what you read about the masters. There are these stories about Count St. Germain, who is considered to be, uh, by the people that have written about them, one of the masters of the Great White Lodge. And he pops up in different centuries in the court of different kings and you know, you don't quite understand the influence of it. And I do believe that there are beings that, that, that shine a light into the conventional society and world in ways that we don't exactly understand, but that probably help the world from completely falling apart. Because given how screwed up human beings are, their capacity for paranoia and cruelty, it's not amazing in a way only that there are these horrible events like the bombing today. It's amazing that there's any civilization at all yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, this Neanderthal strain in mankind is just a, f a fight. So it's so easy to see the dark side because we see it all the time in crime. We see it the way some of our policies treat people. I'm one of the people who believe we have way too many people in prison. Uh, and uh, we see it in wars. We see it in extreme poverty. So we see that all the time. But what's also kind of amazing is where did the insight and light come from to have any civilization, to have any cooperation, to have anything positive? Because for all of the horrors, and I am I think we share a lot of the same political views, and there's a lot to be very worried about our world in terms of violence, uh, the environment, 
and the centralization of wealth among a tiny group of people and great suffering among others. On the other hand, I do think probably compared to 100 years ago, humanity is better off than they were 100 years ago. Would, would you agree or, or do you yeah, think I'm being I, too no, optimistic? I would entirely agree. The only blot on the two world wars and, and Truman's dropping of the two atomic bombs on Japan, which are you know, which, <laughs> pretty big you know, little details. But That's what I'm saying, but it, that, yeah. those are in the past now, and yeah. now here we are. But I mean, most are. people live better lives. I mean, you know, we don't, we, we're told not to like China, and we certainly don't like the Chinese treatment of Tibet. That's just a no-no and a horror show. Mm -hmm. But I see pictures from Beijing and other places now, and I see people walking around and buying CDs and, and wearing T-shirts. And, and, you know, 100 years ago, they were downtrodden pe peasants. Now, if we talk about 1%, it was 0. 0.0001%. And now people are living some kind of better lives in these places. So I think it's better. They say extreme poverty has reduced itself in the last several decades. Yeah. It's still a tremendous amount of ordinary poverty, you know. But the, the And then, of course, when you talk about the world wars and how horrible they were, we haven't had a world war in, in our lifetime. I mean, so... As terrible as all the wars have been, and I've been against every single war the United States has gotten into during my lifetime, uh, and I'm against getting into new ones now, as people are rattling the saber, uh, and and uh, and it breaks my heart the innocent people, particularly that get killed in wars, and the 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 human suffering and the refugees and just people at a wedding being killed or civilians having their head cut off and all of these horrible things, but 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 it is less than happened. In the in the in the two world wars, right? Yes, and the general state of people is 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 better than it used to be. Uh, although you know we're talking about seven point two billion people, whatever, and a lot of them are still hungry and everything. But I think you're right, though. You know the Rorics uh, and maybe even the Bonos uh, of the of of history. You know, do keep plugging away. I mean, people can, people can be very skeptical about Bono and everything, but he just keeps doing it. And keeps talking about poverty and forgiving uh, debt, and he doesn't have to do that. I mean, he could just, you know, have a good time in the south of France and be a rock star. So, you know, uh, he's a Christian, uh, mm. you know, I guess a, a Roman Catholic, and he seems to want to live a life which is exemplary. And you know, I'm sure he has lots of great cars and lovely houses, but he doesn't have to be doing that, and he's doing it. And he's not the only musician that's doing that. Uh, you know better than anyone, you know, how many great musicians of the last 20, 30, 40 years have, have spent time, a lot of time, in in visionary pursuits of a heroic kind, you know, of trying to unify and trying to stop people from hating other people. And, you know, it, maybe his influence? I mean, who are we to say that these invisible things, I mean, okay, people listening to this are going, who is this Rory guy? I heard of him once and maybe never. But who are we to say that this isn't the way the world actually does really keep on rolling? And things ameliorate. Because without these people, we would be subject to, you know, tyranny. Real tyranny, not the one yeah. that the gun, the gun owners are talking yeah. about. Bono, it says, again, in, in my favorite thing, Wikipedia, it says he's a member of the Church of Ireland. Now, is that the same as, that's not the same as, as Catholic, right? No, it's not. I don't think it is at all. No, it's like the Church of England. Right. You know, which is Protestant. I always thought he was Catholic, but he certainly... Oh, was. no, the mother was of Church of Ireland. The father was a Catholic. His parents said he'd be the first child would be raised Anglican and the second Catholic. Bono was the second child, but he did attend 
Church of Ireland services with his mother and brother. So I guess he, I guess you're half right. Yeah. Christian, anyways, he, he, there's a Jesus uh, vibe about him that seems yeah. uh, good, combined with a rock star vibe that can be uh, unnerving at times. <laughs> You're not kidding. But, I mean, there is the internet and there is television and all this stuff. Whereas Rorick, all Rorick had were letters going in the mail. He was pre-radio, re re really. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. Been. So how did this man and his wonderful wife and kids, how did they communicate this when they were, you know, climbing mountains? Well, radio, came, I mean, in fairness, radio, radio comes along, you know, by the 20s and doesn't die to the late 40s. So there's some ability to have telegraphs, telegrams, and some kind of radio communication for, for the latter uh, part of his life. But it seems like an awful lot of their life was inward. And the, 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 the willingness to trust the inner voice and to follow the inner voice and to, and to, and to make huge plans based on the inner voice and to, and to create organizations based on what the inner voice was telling you um, without, uh, without asking people to join a religion, without having a cult, without asking for contributions or, 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 or uh, for anyone to uh, turn their back on members of their family or on other religions or anything like that is, is a very beautiful uh, example because um, you just don't, there's just not that many people in world history who've been able to actualize those beliefs in that same way. I mean, I think a lot of people who are saintly are not public people. I think there are people you pass in the street that you don't know and will never know their names, but who spend their lives tuning into the divine, what some of us call God, and and, and shining it. And that, that those lights of these unknown people, unknown to us, help keep the world together. Uh, but every once in a while, someone does it in a public way, and he did leave behind these paintings. And I don't even particularly like going to museums. I've never been someone who, whose mind can calm itself in a way to really absorb a painting the way, say, my dad, who I know you were very close to, could, or the way great oh. lovers of art can. Uh, but even I um, uh, look at some of Rourke's paintings, some of them of, of, uh, that, that have a mystical quality to them that, 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 that really, to me, have a force that are worth tuning into. And that's kind of just why I wanted to do this, because I have no idea, you know, one person listens to this or 10 or 20. Uh, I, I, I doubt it'll be in the millions. But, but to the extent that anyone tunes into these paintings, you know, I think it's, it's extending his vision and his energy, which, as far as I can tell, has been a completely positive one for humanity. But when we went to the museum together, uh, my jaw dropped for a week. Because I'd never seen anything that that I just was so, I mean, just grabbing the mag magnetism of it all. His paintings are amazing, yeah. and uh, particularly when he does something like Buddha, you know, because yeah. you don't see Western paintings of Buddha, you know. But he did them, and he did them in, in a way that made the person seem real. I mean, he was sitting there in a mountain, and you looked at it, and it was wow. It wasn't a photograph, but it was an inner photograph, if you know what I mean. It, it had that. He, he painted externals, but each of his paintings, and he did. I think four or five thousand paintings. Yeah, he was a freak. It was like Jimi Hendrix playing the guitar. I mean, the sheer quantity of what he was able to do was ridiculous. So there's 150 paintings on display at the, at the Rourke Museum in New York, which, again, you guys can find out, but it's, it's 107th Street, 319 West 107th Street. But then there's thousands of others elsewhere, and there's, there's an enormous number of them that have been, that have been lost. 
but but I loved Buddha and Elijah and some of the people that I've heard of. But I also loved some of the scenes with mystics that he created of people I'd never heard of and reminding us that for all the realms that we study and know better, they're in books, there are so many other realms of light that, that never became famous in uh, Western terms that, that are still part of the universe. And, and so he, he kind of was also someone who who carried some of that energy in ways that I don't even know if there were books about some of these people. No, he came across, exactly. He came across this one famous thing where he came across some kind of Shambhala ceremony out of nowhere. He was, they were, they were trekking through the Himalayas and they came across this bunch of Tibetan lamas and they were doing the secret ceremony, which they allowed him to look at. And he never forgot it. And it was supposed to be an augury of the, of the time to come and how to deal with dark times. And he, he talked about that extensively. You know, yes. even now, you know, we know that Krishnadas and our friends have gone to India and been in very obscure places and met all kinds of people and brought that back and, and we were influenced by it. Even Steve Jobs and apparently even Zuckerberg had something to do with, with the guru. The guru that yeah, was, Zuckerberg uh, made some reference to Nim Karoli Baba lately. Well, uh, he said uh, that Jobs, when Zuckerberg was 18, he met Jobs and he was confused and, and neurotic and didn't know what to do. And Steve Jobs said to him, look, take a plane, go to Delhi. Go to Kenchi. There's a guy called Nim Karoli Baba. Uh, he's no longer with us, but go there and meditate. And these are two of the most influential technician, entrepreneur, visionaries of all time. Oh, certainly um, of our current, of certainly of modern times of, but, of today. It's hard to think of oh, God, of God. two more powerful forces in the tech or financial worlds. Certainly, Jobs and and but think about it. They had all the tools necessary. They did. Rurik you know, went to these places, saw these obscure and amazing spiritual rituals and doings and behavior and brought it back. And I mean, you say your dad and mom supported Wallace, but they knew about Rorik, right? Victor and, and Mimi. I don't think they did. I, oh, yeah. I never, uh, I learned about Rorik from a biography of Wallace. Okay. And by that time, my mom had passed away and uh, my dad was, was pretty old and I never really discussed it with him. So I have a feeling they did not. I, uh, maybe they would have been aware of the guru letters because it was about smearing uh, Wallace. Actually, that was probably one of the best things about Wallace is that he had met Rorick, but it was used to make him seem weird and unworthy of the gravitas of being commander-in-chief and all that sort of thing. But I, I think it was a brief moment in time. I, I, um, I don't know whether my parents ever, ever were familiar with his paintings or not. It's possible they were, but I never heard of him until uh, much later. So that goes to show, because certainly Victor was such an expert on history of art and art. Yeah. When you went to a museum with him, it's the exact opposite of what you were talking about. You'd stand in front of a painting and he'd grab you. And I, I know when we went to the, when, when Museum of Modern Art was moved temporarily while they rebuilt it, he took me to, uh, I guess it was Queens, to look at paintings. And if I moved too quickly from one painting to another, he'd put his hand on my shoulder. He's much taller than me. and say, oh, hold on, hold on a minute. Have you really absorbed this one, you know? I mean, he knew. And so art, you know, penetrated. And he was a, a, a very, I mean, fascinating. We could do 10 podcasts on Victor Kohlberg alone. But, you know, here's a man who was very much of the world, but was a, a, a peacenik, although he fought bravely in World War II, as everybody sort of had to. And yet he had a spiritual depth. And I think his generation, uh, it was a much tougher, a much tougher line than it is for ours. 
it wasn't that hard for John Lennon to to or George Harrison to appreciate Krishna consciousness. But even that was thought of as lunacy. You know, I keep thinking about this, Danny, going back to the 20s, and apart from Blavatsky and the other mystics in the West, this was heresy. This was black magic for Christians and Jews. It was just black magic. It was not. Yeah, there were a few uh, people who shone some light. Again, Vivekananda is someone who, a disciple of Ramakrishna, who came and spoke at some Chicago conclave in the 20s and and brought a lot of Eastern and, and Universalist ideas to the West. And then, of course, Yogananda, uh, you know, uh, there were there, and and there were a few people that brought that brought this to the West, and they people, you know, there's books about it and so on. But it was very, very weird. It was pretty much you were a Christian or you were a Jew, uh, or or and then there was a few outcasts that called themselves atheists, and th- those it was pretty much vanilla chocolate and strawberry. Um, but it's funny about the World War II generation. I mean, my dad um, did, uh, you know, he fought. He was in the ninth day after D-Day and later, you know, was part of liberating Buchenwald and had whatever a couple of years of that. And to this dying day, he was haunted by the idea that he had killed people there and never glorified it. But he definitely did it. And at the same time, his best friend growing up was a cousin of his also named Victor, who was exactly the same age. Uh, and uh, who, who in the 40s, Victor Kraft, who's passed away now, and I wish I could interview him, because um, he was a conscientious objector for World War II, guy born into a Jewish family in Philadelphia, uh, who, who, who uh, stayed very good friends with my dad. They made different choices about what to do about the war. And, you know, he was the closest person in the family to my dad for all of my childhood and stuff. It didn't affect their relationship in the slightest. But what a decision that must have been for a Jewish guy to make in the 40s uh, to, to to say his his spiritual and religious beliefs prevented him from serving the armed forces. That was quite a, a price one paid. I'm not kidding. Wow, that, that's – there weren't many of them. I mean, you know, certainly growing up in England, I never heard of one. You know, because obviously England was attacked quicker, or at least it was at war two years. Well, what, did Bert, what was Bertrand Russell's posture during World War II? He had been a great pacifist and was against World War One, famously and unsuccessfully, but he was very vocal about it. Did you? Was he someone you were aware of a lot growing up? And, and, yes, and, yes and, I and, was, because he was the only philosopher that anybody talked about. There weren't, you know, there weren't that many. But the yeah. only reason they talked about him was because of his social activism. You know, and he was a brilliant, brilliant man, a beautiful man too. I met him once on the the very first CND march campaign for nuclear disarmament, which was in 1962, I guess. Mm. And I went on it, and I forced myself to the front of it, being a, a, that kind of person. And Bertrand Russell was leading the march, and I was virulently against American missiles being placed in Britain, which was what CND was all about. Right, and, right. And I was, you know, 15, I guess, or 16. And I looked at him, you know, I didn't dare speak to him, but I looked at him and he had this long, white flowing hair and was just amazing looking. But I think he was a country, if anybody knows out there, please correct us, I think he was, I cannot imagine that he wasn't. I think he was a pacifist as a deep calling and, and spiritual belief. And, you know, I got into a conversation the other night with some people. Uh, who were very worried about Vladimir Putin and Syria and about ISIS. And, you know, it seems like there's always some scary threat to our way of life. Uh, and, and it doesn't, that's supposed to justify uh, military action. 
And of course, that doesn't mean that some of these people aren't dreadful and scary individuals. I, I have no sympathy for Putin or for ISIS, zero. Um, but um, on the other hand, um, I, I, uh, I, I have such a resistance to the um, uh, siren, siren calls of more violence and more militarism on our side because I've never seen it make anything better in my lifetime. You know, in my first war I remember was, was Vietnam. But while I was arguing this with my friends, um, I found that I was um, doing it in, in a way that was angry and that, and that I was tuning into sort of the teenager in me that, that had been against the war in Vietnam. And I commingle my feelings about that war with all the other feelings, I guess, of being a teenager, which have a lot to do with individuation and frustration and unresolved issues of all sorts. And, and I realized after dinner, uh, I just uh, – that being angry about it never can – you can't sell peace with anger, you know. And that's one of the interesting things reading about Rorick is that, that he does seem to be somebody who's a role model, as my image of Bertrand Russell is, of having done enough inner work to be able to be very firm uh, and loving at the same time. Um, I know you're – well, anti-intervention, anti-militarist, and struggle with some of these things. Well, yeah. you, you have any thoughts about this package of ideas? I do. I mean, Russell was actually an atheist, but you know, he was also a, a moralist and a very clear thinker about human values and human rights. And you know, uh, I watched when Jimmy Carter announced that he had cancer, and um, I was moved to. I was just so upset because I think that his work, mainly as, after his presidency, is an example of a great man who has inner strength and inner yeah. power. And my goodness, they're so rare that, you know, even Fox News spent a good time uh, praising Jimmy Carter on that particular day, which shocked the hell out of me, actually. But how could they not? Because, you know, he was such an amazing person. But he's still, by the way, he's still with us as still, we speak. I'm sorry yeah. to say, he's very still good. teaching Sunday school every Sunday, as far as I know. I hope he goes on forever. But you know, they're rare. They're real rare. These 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 real peace based, very successful politicians. Extremely. But you know what? I really want to just take a step back to yeah. Bertrand Russell for a minute, because of course he was famous for being an atheist. I can't believe I forgot that. And yet, what does that word atheist even mean? Right. What does the word Christian Judaism, these labels? I mean, I'm sure he was clearly saying he wanted nothing to do with any organized religion. So that's one clear threshold. And maybe he was just saying he just didn't want to buy into any dogma of having to do with, uh, you know, the afterlife or any other ideas that were not in the physical world. And yet to have such a deep commitment to nonviolence and peace and principle – it, there's got to be a name for it that has uh, – it, 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 it's still to me the brother and sister of, of, of a true Buddhist, a true Christian, a true Jew, an atheist with that level of commitment to idealism and ethics. It's, it's, it's still a, a color of the same rainbow. And um, you know, one of the things I want to try to deal with is to honor my own spiritual beliefs but honor – the divinity of people who don't believe there is such a thing as divinity, but I still think they're divine. And I still think Bertrand Russell 
was a spiritual being, even if he would have hated that word or that description. And, and, and I guess we almost have to create some new language that's big enough to include somebody like Bertrand Russell, because if he's not a saint, I don't know what a saint is. Right. <laughs> I mean, even Ricky Gervais, you know, who, who, who constantly decries religion and, and is a, an avowed agnostic, loves animals, and he said if he has a religion, he used the exact same phrase as His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He mm. said, my, religious, my religion is kindness. I don't know Ricky Gervais, but I do know that for a person to come out, a public figure, a famous celebrity, to come out and say, that my favorite things are kindness and kindness to, kindness to humans and kindness to animals. That makes him an extraordinary person to me. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll have some of whatever he's having. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, okay, in the name of kindness and gratitude, I thank you for doing this with me. And no, I, hope, I hope that anyone listening uh, goes online and does a little homework on Nicholas Rorich. You'll find it a rich and beautiful experience. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash danny.